0: gut a deer with a dull knife we all know how much that sucks so um take a look at the razor pro saw combo kit and uh, head on over to outdooredge.com and enter the discount code nation 30 that's nation 30 for 30 percent savings on your purchase
1: welcome to the land and legacy podcast we're your hosts adam keith and matt dye this is your number one resource for all things land if you're interested in conservation habitat management hunting strategy And Rural Real
2: Estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back to the Land and Lacey podcast. Rolling down the road.
1: Rolling down the road, story of our life. Back (laughs) on the road. Um, Turn me up a little bit there. It sounds like I'm a little weak. We're rolling down the road headed to... uh, one of our favorite places to work iowa the state of iowa um spring is sprung at least here in the lower midwest yeah. and we are um basically you know as i uh, podcast number two this week has met wardlaw um friend of ours client of ours and and uh background in soil health or uh working with clients in the in the in the agricultural crop commodity he's world. an
2: agronomist.
1: And we were telling a story. I was like, yeah, this morning I stepped out and heard a cardinal mm-hmm. cardinal singing. He's like, yeah, I got one better for you. I'm <laughs> like, you're going to tell me a turkey story, <laughs> which you which will because uh, – or he did uh, after the podcast because uh, – and I don't know how much he's getting after it, I think quite a bit, because just a few days prior he sent me a picture – I said, "What time you want to record?" He said, "Preferably afternoons." <laughs> and he sent me a video of him walking with the shadows, oh. with the shadow, and you see this head swinging mm-hmm. behind him as he's throwing one over his I shoulder. Like I'm I like that. I like that. Okay, that's that's good. That's uh, good. Under,
2: understood. Understood.
1: Yeah. And so uh, he. Uh, now that's a really good podcast for you guys looking to uh, improve your food plots based on soil fertility, soil test reading. And then most importantly, how to take a soil test, uh, information that you get back from the lab and use it to change your, basically take their recommendations and use it for good. So, well, yeah, I mean,
2: the, gosh, how many times do you, have you heard about people talking about, oh, take a soil test, take this, take that. But like now every, everyone takes them uh-huh. and then they get this information back and it's like, OK, then how do I take the information and really apply it? Where, do, where am I best served? Um, yeah. and, and the application of amendments and everything And then next week I'm excited for the podcast that you and I have been brainstorming on for months and months um, You yeah. know, following up that podcast with Mitt So that'll be one certainly to tune into
1: Yeah, uh, before we jump in there though Turkey season is coming up and we were excited mm-hmm. this week when we had a, or I guess it was last week We had a delivery made um, from Vortex Optics Yes and, you know, when it comes to turkey guns, we've used a pile of different guns. Um, different gauges. Yeah, different. Well, really
2: stuck with same ammo.
1: Same ammo since Supremes were kind of, I use Winchester. And, I, I like, we don't have any kind of contract with Winchester. But we do know those guys. And I use Winchester Supremes forever. Then when they came out with Longbeard. Went right switched. in Longbeard. Yeah. And I haven't switched since. It's a, it's I if it's not broke, don't fix it. And That's I right. love Winchester Longbeard XR and uh, have been using it from the very first year it released, or actually the year prior to it actually officially releasing. Um, and so uh, just absolute love it. So we got we've got shotguns yep. that we're gonna be throwing red dots on to have the Vortex new spark solar. Yeah, that, that red dot, I mm.
2: think, is about, is about to be one of the best red dots for turkey hunting with some of the key features of its motion activa- activation. Like, once you turn it on, it's on for 14 hours, even if there's no motion. But when you do maneuver the gun or you're walking, it, it clicks on. Yeah. So if you've been sitting still and you need to make a quick shot, you shoulder that gun, that red dot's boom, it's on. And, and it's just <coughs> a single dot,
1: Yeah. so we're going to use it because, you know, any guests we take, mm-hmm. throw them up there, it's like put the red dot on, on the base of the neck and pull yes. the trigger. Yes. It's not that game of bury the bead. Is it a high bead? Is it a low bead? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do with the bead? Just like rifle sights or, the, you know, yeah. put
2: the bead, put, put the red dot on its head and, pu- and pull the trigger. That's right. Uh, so it's a
1: little bitty red dot with mm-hmm. a little bit of a, a solar strip on top, so it's That's got right. excellent b- battery life. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, one of the great things, too, is it's got um, the caps, scope caps, on both ends that automatically, if you pull them off, they actually fold up and go on the side of the scope so they're not dangling and flopping mm-hmm. around. You don't have to take them out. They're just always on the scope. So Not getting hung
2: on briars and this and that. It's a
1: really cool optic. You guys should check it out at vortexoptics.com. All right. So, continuing turkeys this week. Yep. I mean, there's a lot of guys down south that are uh, getting after that it. That are getting after it. I mean, our, our boy down there in Mississippi. Mr. Mister Kyle Bennett. Kyle Bennett's been getting after it. <laughs> if he's not too busy in Florida on the beaches. <laughs> What's up, brother? <laughs> and, hope you're doing uh, well, dude. We've got our guys down south chasing turkeys. We've had some clients kill them, yep. in, kill them in Florida. Yep. Um, we've got some other guys that are hitting them and going after them in Alabama. Georgia. Georgia. Yep. So um, it's going to be i'll be on a consult in south carolina in a few weeks and turkey season i know we kind of had to tweak it around because of turkey Mm -hmm. season so uh it's really awesome uh big shout out to russell down in south carolina i've been seeing him do some he's showed me some prescribed fire pictures Ooh. so we got guys go, that are man. having a little bit of a hard time putting down the habitat tools to pick up the shotguns which is just you major know. props to those yeah, guys for absolutely for for ensuring the the long-term sustainability of population game populations and even non-game populations with their habitat work i mean this spring or this winter going into the spring has been one of the busiest ones for me to getting of getting pictures from clients and, and just people that listen, yeah. sending them in on social media and saying, "This is what I'm doing." I've had some guys and I, that have tagged us that I don't know if I've ever seen their name, seen any kind of engagement, but they're tagging us because they're doing edge feathering for the first time, right? Or they're implementing prescribed fire for the first time, and it's just it's such a refreshing thing to see guys using these great tools that have been with us for a long, long time and kind of picking up the dropping the fads and picking up the the uh, timeless the timeless practices that are gonna ensure quality habitat management, quality habitat restoration. So I'm very I, I'm very encouraged. It's twenty twenty one and coming out of a, a great habitat season, you know, it never really is over when it comes to habitat management. But there's certain practices and times of the year where it seems like more people have things to do or are willing to go out, and the winter is one of the I best think, times. Yeah, I
2: think there's always that little <laughs> bit of uh, capitalizing on, on what some people would uh, would say is cabin fever. You can't hunt that much, but you can get out there and you can work the property. Absolutely, and, and we have totally seen this this drastic steep um, incline of people sending in those pictures and that's so encouraging whether whether you are someone who um, listens whether you're following along on social media or whether you're a client we are so encouraged to get those because that that's fuel for us too if man people are listening people are applying or implementing these techniques and they're doing it they're doing it well (laughs) or we're able to to coach them along when they're sending in pictures and these other questions Yep. um so to, to know that 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 you know, is the information's received and then being applied is like check box to the to the fullest because that's what we want. We want to know that at the end of every podcast we're gonna see certain acres improved. Yeah.
1: And one of the other things I wanna make a shout out is our Facebook group, Uh, we used to call it land and wildlife and conservation community. We've rechanged the name to Land and Legacy Podcast, Land and Legacy Habitat Podcast Q and A, and it's basically an opportunity for us to share our podcast and you guys engage in conversation, questions, follow up, yep. or like I did last week, I posted about an upcoming podcast and allowed people to put their questions in there so we could ask those during the during the podcast with that guest. So, be sure if you don't like that page already. If you're having trouble finding it, just search Atlanta and Legacy" on Facebook and go to the Groups tab, and you'll see our various groups there, and look for the one that's Habitat Podcast Q and A.
2: Yeah, the the goal with the podcast is to try and get as much good quality information out to people as we can, and we want to we want to know where you guys are at with the information. So there's that page or, or, or group to be able to interact and say, "Hey, I like this," but clarify this for me on this podcast or hey can you guys discuss this or cover this or or re-hit this i I, i'm still i'm having cold feet about implementing that or or i don't know how this may apply to my situation plug in to that group and we'll be if you will kind of moderating checking in it's also a great a great way for people to meet others that are doing the same practices yeah um and, and and help one another out so absolutely so, turkeys. Sure. This this week in the Turkey Podcast series, as we're driving down the road, we're going to be chatting about uh, essentially big recaps from the several weeks of talking to Dr. Chamberlain and uh, Dr. Collier and, and the research that's happening with turkeys, but specifically how do we take that known research and how do we say this translates to quality practices that I need to be doing on a given property that I want to improve turkey numbers on?
1: Yeah, and I think what sometimes do I do? when you hear them talk or research researchers talk, it's great. And we really tried to point the questions in a, in a standpoint of the research and then how to apply that if I'm a landowner. Yes. And they had some great answers. And so we're going to mm-hmm. dive in even deeper on what they were talking about and then you're going to hear how Matt and I are taking the information that they gave and the research that they've done and apply it to our own farms.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think that's just something that, once again, guys, if you focus solely on turkeys and you take the research that they've done and the information they gave on our podcast for two weeks, and then if all you did was say, I don't care about deer, I don't care about quail, I don't care about lizards, I don't care about birds, whatever – all I'm going to do is apply the information for wild turkeys. If you did that, your deer would improve significantly. Likely, your quail would benefit from this significantly. Um, if you're I, up north, the rough grouse would probably benefit significantly because of what they pheasants talk about.
2: Would, would would improve as well. Well, it's not native
1: birds. Whatever.
2: <laughs> pheasants would improve. <laughs> it's... I, I, I think think about this, guys. When we're looking at the habitat management practices and the, and the the type of habitats, vegetation, plant communities that the wild turkey is going to use throughout a year, think of it like a Venn diagram. You know, there's there's things that are um, contrasting, then there's a lot of overlap. And when we when we're doing that with a you know, comparing comparing side by side white-tailed deer and wild turkey and bobwhite quail and rabbits and these things, sure, there's a lot of things um, that are going to overlap. But the outside edges of that Venn diagram, there's not that much that that are just say mutually exclusive. Like you can't, like you won't find turkeys here. You might in a window, but that's just where it comes down to the distribution or the percentage. Of those things that we don't that that you wouldn't find a wild turkey in, you wouldn't find a deer in, respectively. You just don't want that much of your property comprised of it. Yeah. Like you focus on what's overlapping <laughs> on the features, and that'll become clear as we're talking about that. You know, on the podcast here in a few minutes, you'll 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 be very clear on. Okay, well, a deer is going to utilize that same type of habitat, and well, a quail would utilize that, and so on, and so forth, but focus on those types of things and you know again by default I'm I'm still improving my land I'm still improving um like my responsibility as a landowner to the land itself That's right. I'm making a difference.
1: For sure. And 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 I I really enjoyed the last 2 weeks with with Dr. Collier, Dr. Chamberlain and kind of getting their thoughts because I've you know they've been on a bunch of podcasts and you hear a lot about the research but you don't get as much information on okay how do I apply it it's just like a lot of times you can read a book in college and be like okay this all sounds great but what's it look like when I get in the field or when I get in the shop or when I get to the classroom it's it's very different translating
2: that information like you know getting it in your ears, processing it in your brain, and then taking it from your brain and then putting it in your hands, like with tools on the landscape, there's a disconnect there for a lot of people. That's okay, but but we're here to help solve that disconnect.
1: Yeah. Uh, One thing I want to point out, (laughs) I'll jump right to it. I don't know if there's any two people more in line or doing more for wild turkeys right now than than these two researchers, these two doctors and professors and what they're doing for the wild turkey and as far as trying to understand what's happening to the bird and why numbers are declining, what's going on in the, in the landscape that's causing them to decline and just try to solve the issue of declining numbers through much of the southeast and other parts of the country, even in the midwest. And so, um, I mean they have a, a, a long list of credentials and and so it's to me when when we look at kind of our laying out farms and trying to understand what's the best practice here uh, best management practice is to look at the research um, and not just research that's done by anybody but peer-reviewed research done by professionals that don't have a special interest in it they're just trying to find the issue and figure out the answer and with these guys both working at really well-known universities funded um through various forms and they're just trying to find the issue well and and that's how we do it okay when we're talking turkeys let's talk to these experts when we're looking at deer let's listen to those experts when we're talking about rough grouse let's talk Let's look at those experts or quail or pheasant, whatever it is. Try to look at the people doing the research and take that science and apply it in layman's terms to our farms.
2: I think it's important to to not only look at just research in general, but... The freshest, the current research. Yeah. Because there's a lot of things that as technology, as tools, as equipment has changed and as, and as the development of more research has occurred, there's more data points. You're able, or, or researchers who are in this daily are able to pose new questions and, and honestly fine-tune the question that then gets the new research <laughs> and where they having these new findings about wild turkeys in general sure we have had successful restockings across this country of turkeys and that's something that obviously super huge should be celebrated but when that was done we didn't fully understand the wild turkey although yep. it was successful obviously with this research we're finding or or they're finding that holy cow there's new things that that we didn't know about the wild turkey. Yeah. And so that's the kind of research we need to be really leaning into that's going to yield the biggest results, opposed to things that may be slightly outdated. And, and I think a lot, a lot of the research, honestly, it builds upon one another. They yeah. may take a finding and then hit that uh, cool data point and dig deeper. And so as uh, o- over time, it's building out these questions and and these um the findings themselves so stick with current stuff and yep. go with that <clears throat> um and so that leads us into today yep. how do we manage turkeys <clears throat> on the landscape what are the type of practices and and I think we we're going to be our, as specific as possible when we're talking mm-hmm. about this cuz we've talked about turkey management in the past but like specifically what are the practices and with this information, how are we, as in Adam and Matt, how are we changing some of the techniques that that we may have previously used based on this research? What's what's the one of the first things Adam it comes to your mind?
1: <laughs> I have such a a, 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 a I don't know stigma with it, if that's the right terminology, but I, it should be it should it will probably come at no surprise, but. When I was growing up, and even as a, I'm 33 now, so even as a 25 year old, there was a heavy amount of information that basically correlated you want prey, you got to get rid of predators. And I think that through a lot of their research, it's like, you know, and even they said it, they, they mentioned it, both of them, when we asked them what they would do to help their turkeys, neither one of them mentioned the fact that they should do trapping mm-hmm. or that they would do trapping. They both mentioned, yeah, you know, it's going to be, it's fun, but most landowners aren't going to have the ability to change anything through trapping. They're just going to waste a lot of time and money trying to do it. Yep. And so I think that's one of the big things for me. If I try to look back at, you know, 20, the age fifteen to twenty five, I would have been like, okay, we got to trap coyotes, we got to trap bobcats, we have got to trap fox, we got to get rid of raccoons. That's what we're gonna do. Yeah. And and now it's like, okay, I'm not even gonna waste my time with that right now. It it almost is. It's. I gotta give credit to Mitt Wardlaw on on uh, on the other podcast this week. Talking about a principle that's used a lot in soil fertility, yep. Liebig's Law of the Minimum, and was something that Mitt said that, honestly, I've never even correlated it directly, probably indirectly, the same kind of thought process, but never directly as the law of the minimum, which is basically in, in my, you know, when I was in college, there was <clears throat> it was basically you're only as good as the worst player on your team. Yep. Okay, well, I can understand that. I can't understand a lot of the other stuff this teacher's saying, but I can understand that. <laughs> and so I'm only as good as the worst player on my team. And so many times you look at the minimum, and and that you're only as good as your the minimum on your property. And I think that so many properties we visit, the minimum could be overall. If you want to just sum it up, terrible habitat. Yeah. There's no diversity. There's, and by no diversity. It's it's no it's diversity of cover and there's yeah. no diversity of food, which are both required for prey species to survive, so no wonder everything's struggling here. So
2: so, so that's the minimum. That's the minimum. So so it's that's hard your to worst point Yeah, yeah. Because
1: it's just everything's terrible. And and so Mitt was talking about you just apply that to anything. Okay. If I own two hundred acres surrounded by a clear cut, I don't even know if he said this on podcast, that might have been pre recording, but I know that cover's not the minimum because it's everywhere. Foods, probably. High-quality food in the form of food plots might be the easiest way for me to attract deer to my farm. Mm -hmm. And so I think of, you know, the minimum and so many guys. It's just like macro versus micronutrients. And the fact that the macros are way more important than the micros, not that the micros aren't important, but if you really want to change your property or change your soil fertility. You got to focus on the macro first, and then deal with the micro later on. And the micro is predators. Yeah, to me, for sure,
2: for sure. Well, and, and I think uh, honestly, any um, <clears throat> anyone understanding is a a prey species cannot exist um, without proper habitat in yeah. place. <clears throat> and without that being in place, we can't move on to step two. That kind of goes back to the podcast last week. Everything's got. You know steps. Um, you don't want to go and start sanding with the 220 or 240. Yeah. 400 grit. You don't
1: go to the sawmill and don't get a bunch no. of rough cut lumber and break out the 220 grit no. and start trying to smooth her out.
2: It. There's a step by step process to get there, and I think a lot of times the the re, the reordering of that, um, especially since research is suggesting. Um, not just observational, but research is certainly proving that is not the necessary first step yeah. when about habitats you? in place. What about one, one of the things that I've I really enjoyed was some of the some of the spatial aspects of wild turkeys. Yep. One thing comparatively speaking that about deer, you'll have, you know, different sized core areas for individuals within a deer herd. But specifically <coughs> bucks they have a very unique classification. They have antlers, right? You can tell individuals from from one another. Yeah, turkeys not so much, right? A gobbler, pretty much a gobbler.
1: Yeah, you can't much.
2: really, you cannot really see that individual from one day to the next to next week and know if it's the exact same bird. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of how how birds you utilize the landscape um, because that one bird on Monday you see them on a on a pasture along a ridge top and then you see a bird there Friday that doesn't mean that that's necessarily the same bird and i'm not talking about just the spring we're talking about year round turkeys are they frequent similar areas even if it's a different flock because that, there's probably a high high quality or a high concentration of the resources or the topography works them into an area that hey turkeys just frequent here right yeah. so when they when when Chamberlain w- was talking about that, it just kind of really hit home the the intense need to to those who are in an area with very low turkey populations, and you've got to start knocking on doors. You've got to start making the phone calls to neighbors and look at it from a landscape approach. And I know that can be intimidating, but the way that birds will utilize five, six thousand, ten thousand. Acres in size, potentially. I mean, that that's a big region, and one person can't shoulder that. No. One person, I don't care how intense you want to work 40, 60, 80 hours a week on just straight habitat, it ain't going to do it. Like, you yeah. have to be talking and sharing this type of information with your neighbors if, if you're struggling to get. Uh, reproduction rates, or, you know, grow a turkey population in a local area. You've mm-hmm. got to look at it big scale. And so it's not even a, for, for me, I guess, one of the big things or cool things to, to pick out of the research. It wasn't even what tool do I use. It was what scale do I need to be looking at so then I can take the tools and apply them appropriately. Let's look at it from... A thirty thousand foot view, rather than a square footage view of does this tree need to be here or that tree? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah. we
1: can
2: we can <laughs> learn from a surrounding area,
1: and th- and, and, and it's kind of one of those like if you're a uh, if you're a smaller acreage person, let's just say you're under two hundred acres, uh, and it doesn't matter how wonderful you make that two hundred acres. Turkey's using more of the neighborhood so if you uh you know if there's a portion of the year where they go over to the neighbor and something happens while they're over there and half the population gets killed it doesn't really matter how great your place is if because you're bleeding off the property Mm -hmm. and and so that's kind of a a a great point i'm glad you brought that up because you know when it comes to turkeys it's a little bit uh, you know just like deer we encourage cooperatives yeah you know we had hunter on from Mm -hmm. national wildlife cooperative that basically um you know that talking about the importance of that and so
2: here's here's direct research that supports that collaborative effort in and in the need for it and i think that too (laughs) thankfully turkeys um they don't have that let's say individual characteristics where you can tell yeah. Spe- you know, individuals from another so when when yeah. you approach neighbors of working together specifically for the enhancement of wild turkey populations there's not like that oh well this is my deer that deer you've you know all that sort of jazz that everyone yeah. knows what i'm they're picking up what i'm putting down kind of thing yeah. it's turkey population it's a population yeah. you know thing that you're approaching people with and and that's something to create that uh, collaboration to build and foster relationships and, and maybe you take it to the next level after certain years of working together on, on focusing on turkeys or maybe it's quail in your region try a different species to, to yeah. connect a, a neighborhood together for sure
1: so let's talk a little bit about some of their the, the main points so uh-huh. we asked both of them actually frank asked brett yep and we asked mike yep what they would do on their properties, and they gave similar answers but different practices. So one of the big things that Mike said was thin timber, right, and burn, mm-hmm. and if it's open ground, do some dormant, uh, basically do some disking, yes, to encourage more herbaceous forbs basically to mm-hmm. grow rather than grasses rank. that are grasses. rank, and yep. so. That's it. I mean, that was his main ones. It was like, that's where I would, I, I could do so much with mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And so if we take that information, thinning timber and how to make it the quickest turnaround possible. Yep. Here in the Ozarks, where we're out of, and this goes with a lot of terrain country, timber country, but a lot of your southern slopes aren't necessarily going to grow great timber, especially if you're in the south, just because it gets so hot. And so it's a great opportunity
2: there's a rich there's a richness of the southern facing slope, huh. that's like if you want to make if you want to devote acres to wildlife, let's focus and, and and but you still want timber value, let's focus on some south slopes.
1: that's right yeah and and, and so for a guy going, okay, I, he said the thin timber, where do I thin timber? Yeah I would start on your south or west facing slopes. Yep. you're going to get ample amount of sunlight. There's probably a rich diversity of, of plants in the seed bed. And so just go in, identify, even if you just find the trees that are crooked, show signs of being unhealthy, signs of disease, whatever it may be. They're not good straight trees with a nice full canopy. Cut them down. Yep. And then if you or, want to or, take it one step further, just start learning your species and go, okay, why is this sycamore on the south-facing slope? I'm going to cut it <laughs> yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Why is this big elm on the south-facing slope? I'm going to cut it down. Why There's a whole bunch of shagbark hickory, or there's a whole bunch of pignut hickory right here. I'm going to cut half yep. of them down. And just doing that, just because it's south-facing slope, you'll likely get a lot of plant regeneration growing there because it's likely getting a lot of sunlight because it's on a yeah, south-facing slope. The
2: exposure... Uh, from a sunlight standpoint, is going to increase obviously that diversity. It's going to increase the herbaceous layer of vegetation to come back, and that then brings on insects, more life, more blooms, more seed-producing plants. Yeah, the, the list goes on, right? But you'll get a quick
1: cut it in the winter, and you'll yeah. see tremendous results. And we're not in the saying,
2: summer. obviously clear cutting well no they're, they're, you don't
1: have to you
2: could it, it depends That'll on be right the part area two, yeah, yeah it, it depends it depends on uh what it is you want to create there in, in in those specific regions but one thing that there is with with turkeys and it kind of goes back to that venn diagram we don't want to have a, a response of a really high stem count of woody tree species saplings that yep. isn't nearly as usable as it is for deer so having goals, knowing what it is you want to you want to do, um, like we said last week on the podcast, and, and habitat where, is intentional. That's why what what you think want to create.
1: That uh, if I'm looking for high density, we know that using prescribed fire would lower your stem density. Uh huh. And so south facing slopes burn really well. <coughs> yep. So if I'm looking for areas of higher stem density that are more that are uh, uh more beneficial to deer i'd probably do those on east slopes and north slopes because naturally i'm not going to be able to get as hot of a fire in there yeah. and it probably historically didn't burn on on a regular uh or as much as a south and a west facing slope certainly not to the same intensity that a, a south and west facing slope would carry so if i'm looking for those pockets of thick stem density high stem density i would probably put them on east and north slopes now, not so you can't get them on the south slopes, but if you're using prescribed fire, you're likely going to burn them up.
2: And and specifically, we're we're managing for turkeys out of this podcast. Yeah, that's that's what I'm doing. And and if you're in a hardwood system, you don't have to do that all in phase one. Do it in multiple phases because you're if if you take the if you take the stem density down. I mean the, the canopy density by thirty percent. Woody saplings are going to want to come back in that because of the amount of light, but you may actually to get a really rich herbaceous layer, you may need to take it down even farther. But do that one year, burn it, and then come back in a winter, reduce it some more, and then wait a year or two, and now you've got 60% open after two stages of cutting, and you've balanced that back out. Maybe you come in and done some um, treated some of those saplings, and voila. Here's this herbaceous plant community that we want, and it's not just straight high stem counts of woody saplings. That's right. So that's one way you could certainly take a, take a look at uh, managing a timber. Uh, timber Other unit thing, for turkeys. Obviously,
1: he said burning. Yeah. And so oh, there's no I doubt mean, I'm burning. Uh, listen to the prescribed fire series, and that's I'm how burning. you'd implement burning. But without it doubt. doesn't matter. Start small if until you feel comfortable, and then go to bigger fires. <laughs> Uh, it, it in, in, just in, burn something <laughs> if it's possible in your state.
2: Yeah, and, and and there's a lot of, and I've I've dealt with this with multiple people. I just got back yesterday from Kentucky, and w- one of the landowners is just, you know, it is what it is. It's the burn regulations through through March. You can't burn until after six p.m. That stinks. That that's kind of constricting, right? Um, yeah, there's very similar uh, regulations like that in Ohio, but. Do your best. It does not have to be a complete burn. If you only get to burn all your edge feathering into the into the block before it stops burning, better than nothing. Put yeah. some flame on the ground. Do what you can. Talk to your state
1: representatives. Yeah, that <laughs> do that in the off season.
2: <laughs> and and do do what it is that you can that you're in control of. And the other research and the. Um, support from both Chamberlain and Collier was, hey listen, small burns they do have significance and yep. they don't have to be fifty, hundred, two hundred acre size burning burn units to make this impact and provide this attraction. Yep. So that should be really positive uh for, for other people. I think, you know, what we were talking kind of pre show is two weeks ago or I guess no, it was about a week ago, there's two hundred and fifty acres burned there in your guys' place and in the years to come, now that fire's been on some of those um, slopes multiple times, a new road's going to be cut in or uh, a new fire break, and some of those are going to be now managed in some smaller units. Well, yep. that, that's that's direct science going into the land management side of things to break up a 90-acre unit into you know a 60 and, you know, and a 30 or something Mike like Chamlin that. Mike Chamberlain said
1: those 50 acres is, is like awesome yeah and absolutely two of ours were over 100 right just the way it works we Mm -hmm. gotta work on that and so you know and then once we get those fire breaks established turn them into four-wheel trails so we can keep them open throughout the year so it's very little maintenance it's just take the backpack blowers and blow blow out the leaves and let the big dog eat Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh so you know implementing fire another crucial thing and then third thing is disking yeah and i mean we're right here in the prime time of old field management yeah, season spraying out cool, cool season non-native turf grasses like smooth brome tall fescue orchard grass i mean my goodness guys get the sprayers out and start knocking that stuff out it has no business being on your recreational ground uh, especially if you don't have cattle i
2: cannot think of a of a of a technique honestly that has the biggest returns and has the most overlap for so many game species then removal of non-native cool season grass pasture grasses like smooth brome fescue and if you're down south warm seasons like bahia, bermuda get
1: Which rid would of take that different type of herbicide yes. treatment yes yeah. yeah removing those turf grasses those but non-native ones is crucial
2: generally speaking what comes back Fantastic, and I can promise you it's going to be way better than what was there currently. Yeah. And so do that because th- I mean, you have so much light into that system. It was a field. I mean, it's yeah. it's a hundred percent something. Hey, there's a prescribed fire right there, or are those brush piles or something. I don't know. That Looks whole like thing's black. Fire. Yeah. It's cool. Driving down the road, seeing it. We're putting it to work right now. Um. So, I but but a that right there. Flame heights, but that's just me. <laughs> there's herbaceous vegetation right there ready to pop year one. You yeah. spray something right now, even if you don't burn off the thatch, in the next few weeks, wherever you're at in the country, you're going to see new green up. You're going to see forbs. You're going to see that, that that richness coming back into those areas. Please do it because it's nesting and brooding habitat. And, again, I don't care if it's just field edges. It doesn't matter if it's one acre. It could be five acres. It could be 50 acres. Spray it. And you don't... Here's the other thing I think that I guess w- when it comes to that, someone may say, guys, I don't know if I want the whole thing old field I- I- I'm- and I'm waiting until I know like, you know, how I want to lay this field out. Guess what? Spray the whole thing. And if you want to change it in two years, it's just weeds and grasses and spray maybe it a couple.
1: Yeah. It or just spray a portion of it and watch what grows back and say, oh, OK, yeah, that that's great. Test it out. Now I'll do it again. Yeah. The other thing that I want to point out too, though, in in that spraying is like, okay, you've got a whole field of of tall fescue or whatever, and you burn it or you spray it. If you want to really speed that up, run a disc lightly over it. That's Mm -hmm. where Mike Chamberlain was really talking about that diskiness, trying to turn that soil just a touch to stimulate a lot of annual weeds like ragweed to grow, which is going to be so beneficial to wildlife species because you're going to have bare ground Mixed with annuals, umbrella-like growth structures, it's great brood-rearing habitat, uh, and it's going to provide tons of forage, it's going to attract ton of insects, and be very beneficial for a lot of wildlife. So, um, that's one of the things, if you heard me ask him the question, I guess it was more like trying to get confirmation of my thoughts, but basically... Uh, so many times we see fields that are too rank in grass mm-hmm. and we see old fields where it's like oh yeah that's a beautiful old field or in, in a lot of cases that's a beautiful crp field well the the grass is too rank yeah oh uh, hey look it's a prairie well the grass is too rank like so many times we see where the grass is just too thick and so using a disc combining that with fire would really help change it quickly to be much more beneficial to wildlife like we list in our vegetation series podcast, mm-hmm. grasses rank very low on our list of quality wildlife habitat. Um, guess, what, guess where crucial. else? They, 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 they rank name.
2: low on the turkeys list, too. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it, we just, they're not, we try to limit them, and most of the time we find them way too thick. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's one of his big things. Now, shift that over to Dr. Brett Collier's advice, what he does on his own farm. And we're talking timber management. that was one of his big things mm-hmm. and And he mentioned one something that Mike Chamberlain didn't mention, and he talked more about timber openings. Yes, and now he talked about thinning timber and burning timber, but most importantly, what he said was, "I like timber openings, and we talk a lot about timber openings on this podcast. And with deer, we talk a lot about bedding thickets. V-
2: very geared towards deer, deer bedding. 100%. Woody saplings. Thick, thick,
1: thick and nasty. High
2: stem counts.
1: Yeah. I want, I want some hinge cuts, no more than 50%. I want some flush cuts. If I'm up north, that's it. I'm not adding herbicide unless it's an invasive. Mm-hmm. But if I'm down south, I might mix it up and do thirds and do a third hinge cut, a third flush cut, and a third flush cut with herbicide treatment, to try to eliminate or lower the amount of stem, uh, woody stems that are coming up from those stump sprouts. And so specifically geared towards turkeys, and this is something we're going to utilize on, on our farm, The home our, our home farm, is we're going to try to create some pockets in the woods that are not food plots, but they're still open. So when we cut the trees, that we select areas that are going to be um, very low-quality timber. We're going to cut them, pile it up, burn it. If there's any kind of you know, firewood value, drag the logs out to cut up for firewood, burn the treetops up, treat the stumps so it grows up in forbs, herbaceous plants. It's more of like a meadow of poke, natives.
2: Pokeweed, weed, poke poke beggars, lice, and edges of green what briar. What we'll
1: try to do is limit the amount of brambles that fill right. in those areas. We, we totally anticipate an area to get a lot of brambles in it. So we're going to monitor those. use prescribed fire every couple of years, probably three probably on a burn cycle every three to five years, and basically create these little half acre to two acre openings in the timber that aren't food plots, but really they're just little openings of, of grasses, fallbaceous vegetation.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you've got nesting potentials. You've got um, brood, brood rearing. You've got, if you're burning off early, you know, late dormant season, edge, you've got strut zones. feather around yeah. it. Not,
1: I, not real aggressive, but uh-huh. enough to really get more sunlight little into that little, area. A little
2: bit of canopy structure on the ground yeah. for, for potential nest sites. Um, ab- absolutely. I mean, th- think, think of all, I, I think in, in the south. All the edges of like um, dozer decks that get uh, cleared out,
1: the old loading docks. Yeah,
2: and and now those, those are, are really crummy. high high, comp- high compaction areas. But you you see a lot of birds frequent those areas. Yeah. But but here's what they have: they've got a lot of uh, annual weed production. Yeah. They've got a lot of sunlight. There's usually y- a lot of bare ground. Absolutely. And I think that um, p- people are so scared to hear, and this is why we get rank grasses and just rank ness and we're and we've lost brooding cover and we've lost quality um, uh, habitat in general for quail is is because people are so scared now of hearing seeing bare ground and I think yeah. that when you hear bare ground obviously what do you envision bare ground in a disc field situation yeah. and I think with with so much information from the from a soil health side of things. That that bare ground, there's a disconnect there. Mm -hmm. Um, When we're talking bare ground for brooding, we're talking bare ground for quail, it's not that resemblance. We need, this is mobility. We need the umbrella-shaped forbs underneath. So there's herbaceous layer, but there's bare ground underneath of that so that they can simply just walk across it. We don't want disc fields where it's just dirt, like you're gonna see.
1: How many fields do you think of these little, like, on consults? These little bitty openings that aren't managed. They're like, I don't want to plant it in a food plot because it's a waste of time. So they let it go, and it ends up being some sort of turf grass covering it. How many? I mean, I I see it all the time. Yeah, uh, totally. And and it's like, man, you could just take that field create some bare ground, disk it up. Heck, you could disk up a third of it every year for several years yeah. and just and have nothing but weeds on one side and bare ground with younger weeds on that side.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and when I... Disking for wildlife and disking for agricultural purposes are two different things. There's two different intensities. It would be like... It would be like... A forest fire that you see out west, that's comparable to, like, agricultural-type disking. And a prescribed fire for wildlife, that's, like, the equivalent to disking for wildlife. Those yeah. intensities, sure, you're using fire in both of them. Fire's present. A disc is present in both of them. But the intensity level and the return of the species, drastically different.
1: I think of it like trying to sweep up, sweep up dirt with a broom versus sweep up dirt with a leaf rake you're gonna get you're just yeah. scratching versus trying to clean it completely up with the broom versus you're gonna move some dirt around but you're gonna leave a lot of dirt there with a leaf rake and it's Gosh. just like that's what the diskiness very light it's just turning that soil anywhere from 25 to 40 percent any more than yep. 60 i don't really like it's too much but you're just turning that soil enough to really stimulate those forbs and, uh, and
2: I can I can promise you this around some of the edges that we were just talking about, the, the potential place you'll hear more about later on in the future, but I'm gonna be doing that. yeah, you better believe some of those edges around around those openings. There will be discs put yeah. in the ground. Uh, for how that. many
1: how many food plots do we see where nothing grows along the drip line? Well, yeah, those are all annuals. I mean, it's disc screaming. Just it get up and let, up and let ragweed grow. Who Absolutely. cares? And pokeweed
2: and jewelweed and some lowlands. Yeah. Like it is screaming. Please, lightly to speak, Don't plant a food plot. Yeah. Ugh. for sure. I love. I love that. Uh, I love that advice. I, and I love the advice of basically just native herbaceous openings and timber.
1: Yeah, totally. And so you know that's something I'm very excited Brute about plots. on my home place. And then, uh, oh no, don't start that fad, right? <laughs> oh no, that's actually a good fad. Yeah, brood plots.
2: Um, we're brood plotting. Yeah, I like it. And no, so it's wonderful.
1: Uh, the other thing that he mentioned was improving the edge. Mm-hmm. And so he's doing a lot of uh, like CRP type programs where it's CP thirty eight, where you're trying to plant diverse high, di- high forward diversity blends along your field edges so in crop country you're planting that um that's great because it's you know you're you're encouraging not only cover but great forbs nesting potential insect potential for food and then you combine that with edge feathering and you're really getting into even more sunlight touching the forest floor some more diversity that's just native regeneration not just planted all in a good 30 to 50 yard stretch and you do that over the course of several hundred yards and you've got a lot of habitat on the ground Yeah,
2: I, I was in, like I said, I just mentioned I was in Kentucky yesterday and the day before um, guess where we, we, we got up early listened to birds gobbling on a limb, pitching out into a field guess what this field was and there's actually a picture on the Instagram story um, it, it was a food, food plot and then an old field that had um, just last year been um, broadcasted with a native blend and mode once. Lots of bare ground, lots of young forbs coming back up, and a food plot. All the hens pitched right onto the edge of the food plot. And here comes three long beards across the creek and walk and strut right across this native planting that's lots of bare ground and weeds right to this group of hens. This is exactly the kind of stuff that we're talking about. Yeah. Right there to them. Utilized right off the limb. I think that there's probably a good chance there's going to be a youth turkey harvest there next weekend. Yeah. And it's like, man, this is real life stuff. It's being put in the ground or placed in, in, across the land right now and, and being utilized by turkeys. This isn't just pie in the sky kind of stuff. We're going to see this through clients in the years to come sending us pictures of broods utilizing these types of areas because this is the stuff that we're recommending every single day to landowners to do when their goals are focused around turkeys. Yeah. And and, and increasing reproduction rates.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, heck,
2: harvest rates too. That's that's why I love old field for turkeys is because break it up. Burn some, now now you've got a great place to harvest turkeys, but you also have a great place for, for bugging areas, the brood plots. Like, it's all in one. It's just yeah. the timing of the year sort of thing.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the, so kind of the takeaways on what is nesting habitat look like, and it was some nice clumps of grass, a few shrubs, kind of a little bit further along in the succession secession. Yep. than early succession. So it's like I think an early succession for that brood rearing, and I think of a little bit further along in that nesting. So if you can go in on your farm – sorry, Matt. That right there annoys me. While we're driving, you get past, and then somebody <laughs> s- pulls over in front of you and then yeah, slows, it slows down. down. Yeah, Drives me nuts. But um, anyway, I think of it like this. If I'm going to key in on, on places on the farm that I'm really trying to promote – And I want to go into these areas that, okay, I know these areas are really hot. There's already turkeys here. Let's build off that. Let's go in and let's try to create these early, these succession. And I I think it goes perfectly with a fire rotation where you may have quality nesting cover for a couple of years in one area. And then it may get burned and have a little bit of a light disc go through it. And all of a sudden it comes brood rearing. And then yep. and what was once brood rearing is now turning more into nesting habitat. Uh, exactly. And when it starts to get a little bit too a little bit too thick, grass the is rangy. too thick, too much saplings, burn it again. Burn it again.
2: And that's the cool thing about, you know, these 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 uh, brood plot openings. You can you can isolate them within a larger even if your larger timber block that they are a part of, so a bigger burn, you, let's say your your timber block's 50 acres, but you have this Acre and a half area in the center of it, you can isolate that that pocket and burn in on a different rotation too. Yeah. Even if it doesn't, even if the timber outside is on a six-year rotation, burn the plot every two to three years,
1: or burn it during the growing season when it's hot sure. and dry. It's not going to burn in the timber. It's, it's right. shaded. Right. And even you don't and you don't have dry, trees in there to
2: worry about if your goal is to manage for for timber harvest in that unit. Like break it up. It takes a little bit more work, but it's work worth doing because research supports this type of habitat is necessary, requ- required, and highly utilized by turkeys in many different times of the year. Yes, I like I, I love talking about turkeys and I like hunting turkeys. Um, it, I, I I'm I know we're coming into April here. Uh, Heck, Easter's at the end of this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Happy Easter, everyone. Hope everyone goes and enjoys a wonderful Sunday of service and Jesus is the risen king. Uh, It's amazing, though, that this is getting to be April and we're going here for us, anyhow. Um, Turkey hunting. Like, it's coming quick. It's so much fun to think about. I love chasing turkeys. I also love trying to... Educate myself on what does that turkey need in December. What does that turkey need in March? What does it need in June and July? How do I put that on the landscape to then have go go back to that Venn diagram? How does that benefit deer though at the same time too? I don't have to pick and choose one or the other. Yeah, I can do both. How do how do I how do I lay that out spatially on a property to make sure the basis is covered for turkeys. So much thought goes into deer year round, but man, what if what if everyone listening said, you know what, I'm gonna have that same intensity for turkeys, and I'm gonna then I'm gonna share that intensity with my neighbors? Wow,
1: the deer would be a lot better,
2: <laughs> and the turkeys would be <laughs> numerous. Yeah. The landscape would be so much better. That's right. That's, that's right. That's important.
1: Oh, man, hopefully I everybody is enjoying this wild turkey series. We're going to get into more hunting in the yep. future. Um, but, man, I think it's been beneficial to everybody, hopefully, and uh, hopefully they'll continue to join us. Um, next week we got some – I'm excited because we've got so many good podcasts coming that we've been yep. brainstorming for a while mm-hmm. that we've been kind of laying out notes to make sure that they're really good. And next week's podcast where we jump into soil health, our take, you and I, yes. um, I, 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 mean, th- I think
2: it's going to be s- shocking, surprising, And wear informative. your steel-toe boots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I, because
1: we, we don't mean, I don't, you know, we've had some people comment, like message us or whatever, say you got a little bit too much, you got a little too aggressive. I'm not here to offend people. I'm not here to upset people. I am here to kind of shake people and to say, please, just give me five minutes to tell you that what we've been doing over the last 30 years for wildlife, and I air quote that, we're doing it wrong. We've been messing up. We've we've chased fads. We've chased silver bullets. Let's stop. Before it gets too bad, come back, give me five minutes, and let's talk. And next week's podcast is trying to shake somebody or talk to somebody before we all pack our bags head down this road, and realize we got nowhere. We got gypped again. Yeah. I got shystered. So (laughs) here we are. Join us next week as we talk soil health and all the things about soil health, all the practices, tools, fads, everything that's going on in the world of soil health and food plots right now. We're going to be talking about it. Guys, we appreciate you. I'll be riding the
2: steamroller. (laughs) <laughs> and, and we'll
1: be we'll be right back here next week. We'll see you guys. Yeah.